You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 23. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Probably the most famous Muay Thai kickboxer of all time was Nai Kanam Tom. He was one of 30,000 Thais taken prisoner by the Burmese in 1767 during an attack on Ayudhya, then the capital of Siam. At a large Buddhist festival held in Yangon, which is modern-day Rangoon, the following year, the Siamese pugilist was invited to represent his fellow prisoners of war in a round of public boxing matches. Before a crowd of hundreds, Kanam Tom unleashed a barrage of bare fists, feet, knees, and elbows, and defeated ten Burmese fighters in succession. Some say it was a dozen. Earning the respect of the royal court and winning his freedom, he returned to Siam a national hero. After Kanam Tom's famous bouts, a member of the Burmese royal court is said to have remarked, quote, Every part of the Thai is blessed with venom. Even with his bare hands, he can fell nine or ten opponents. Many of Thailand's national archives, including the Chuf Fasat, a detailed Thai martial arts manual, were destroyed during a mid-19th century Burmese invasion. The earliest known Thai written reference found in chronicles written in Chiang Mai during the early Lan Na era, which is between 1296 and 1558, mentions a ferocious style of unarmed combat that decided the fate of the Thai kings. During these early days, combatants' hands were wrapped in thick horsehide for maximum impact and minimum knuckle damage. In grudge matches, the hands were bound with glue-soaked cotton or hemp and then dipped in ground glass to inflict maximum injury and pain. Thais are true warriors, and on one famous occasion in the 1970s, Hong Kong's top five kung fu masters traveled to Thailand to compete against Thai boxers. The Chinese were all knocked out in less than six and a half minutes earning Muay Thai the right to be called the most devastating martial art in the world. That is from the book, Prayer Before Dawn, My Nightmare in Thailand's Prisons by Billy Moore, which is also a major motion picture, which is available to watch for free on Amazon uh, streaming. So if you have an Amazon account, Amazon Prime account, you can watch the movie for free. It is a brutal movie, to say the least. It's one of the most intense movies I've watched in a long time. And not intense necessarily for the violence or the language, but the way in which it's directed, the way in which the camera work is, the way it's shot, the cinematography, the way that they filmed the Muay Thai bouts in the movie, and they filmed in an actual Thai prison. And it is, from beginning to end, a very intense brutal movie, both in subject matter and in its depiction of Billy Moore's life in this Thai prison. So having watched the movie and been impressed by the movie, I immediately ordered this book, Prayer Before Dawn by Billy Moore, because for my money, usually the book is better than the movie. And I watched some interviews with Billy about what in the movie isn't 
reality and what was added for the sake of drama and then what was left out of the movie just for the sake of time, which then I wanted to read this book all the more. So when I got it, I opened up right away to chapter four because it's entitled Muay Thai. And I love, love Muay Thai. It took me a long time, longer than jujitsu, to fall in love with Muay Thai. And I would say I fell in love with jujitsu within the first three months of jujitsu. I hated jujitsu, but I loved it at the same time. I hated the punishment that I took. I hated going to class to just survive for an hour. I hated not knowing. I hated being beat up and rolled all around by people that were smaller than I was. But I loved it. I loved everything about it. And I, since I've never ever considered quitting. I know there's people that have come to the gym who have even said, I love jujitsu. I don't know what I would do without it. But then life gets in the way or circumstances. I know many, many people who canceled their gym memberships during the COVID-19 lockdown who never returned, who said they loved jujitsu and yet they didn't love it enough to follow through with it or circumstances are such that they're not able to. And I understand that. I've been around long enough to understand that and I've heard and seen enough at this point to know some people are going to stay and most people are not. When it comes to Muay Thai though, it took me a long time to fall in love with Muay Thai. Perhaps, in my opinion, because it is so brutal as Billy Moore describes in the book. And unlike jujitsu, which you're on the ground, there's always that point of reference at your back or underneath you, the ground. Your opponent is always in contact with you for the most part, always in contact with you. There's that tactile 360 degree experience. But in Muay Thai, which is primarily striking, but it also involves clinches and sweeps, there's distance, there's two-dimensional space. There's figuring out how to move in a three-dimensional way through two-dimensional space. There's elbows, there's hands, there's knees, there's feet, there's clinches, there's sweeps. There's all of these aspects to Muay Thai that make it, as Billy notes, after the, the Kung Fu bouts with the Thai boxers, one of the, if not the most brutal of the striking martial arts. I would argue maybe Leith Wei is a little bit more brutal than Muay Thai because of the headbutts. And having watched Leith Wei matches versus Muay Thai matches, I would much rather fight Muay Thai matches than Leith Wei. That being said, my training partner and I bare knuckle spar. So we're as close to Leith Wei without the headbutts as you can get without becoming Leith Wei fighters. So I understand the appeal of Leith Wei too, at least in a, in a, in a sparring uh, sense, in a sparring uh, situation. But the reason that I read that from Billy, one is to... Um, encourage you to go read the book, even if you're not interested in Muay Thai necessarily, because the book isn't entirely about Muay Thai. It's about Billy being in Thailand, getting arrested for drugs, going to prison, having to essentially fight to find his identity within the prison system, to get clean and sober, to find his tribe, his group to belong to, to give his life some sense of meaning and purpose and place in the world. So it's a fascinating autobiography. It's a quick read. He actually wrote most of the book while he was in prison. And then afterwards was encouraged to publish it. But the reason I brought it up is because yesterday I taught Muay Thai. And then afterwards, I'm the assistant uh, teacher for our introduction to jiu-jitsu at our gym. One of them. One of the classes. And I was talking with the senior instructor. Shout out to Spence. And 
we were discussing that, that there's some people you look around and wonder, where'd they go? Did they cancel their membership? Why didn't they come back? We thought that they were going to stay. They seem so committed. And then others, you think, well, this person's not going to last. And then they're there a year later, two years later, five years later, getting their purple belt or their blue belt or whatever. But Muay Thai, so many people come and go in Muay Thai. And I've taught some people for two years now that just cannot figure out how to get up on the ball of their foot when they throw a kick so that they can turn their hip over. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't click for them the way that other people struggle with grappling. And I was talking with Spence about this because he was observing the classes and he's taken Muay Thai lessons in the past. And I was talking about the British kick, you know, Muay Thai fighters who've come back from Thailand and created this kind of hybridized Dutch kickboxing and traditional Muay Thai and guys like Liam Harrison and others who I have enormous respect for and their skills. But one of the other things that came about from that conversation, which I think really applies to my life, and I think everybody's life is when you're sparring, for example, or, or when you're in the fight, even more so when you're in the fight because you, the person you're fighting with, you don't know them necessarily. Usually you don't. You can't trust them because you haven't trained together with this person. This person's coming at you at 100 miles an hour, full throttle, maximum effort to rip your head off, whatever it might be. It's, this is not sparring. And within that fight, though, there is another fight that happens. There's moments within a fight, whether it's sparring or in an actual tournament competition setting where you're fighting an opponent that you don't know. Within the fight, there's a fight. And for me, it's moments. And what I mean by that is you're squared up with this person and you're, you're doing everything you've been trained to do and you're managing distance and you're reacting, you're relaxed, you're staying relaxed, you're breathing. You're trying to work angles for your strikes, for your kicks. You're trying to set up clinches and then sweeps off those clinches. You're figuring out your entries. You're timing your opponent's strikes. You're trying to figure out your, your opponent's patterns. Like, does he lead with a jab? Does he prefer to lead with a teep or a kick? Like, what's his pattern? And then once I figure out his pattern, then I can start to attack that and I can start to expose the weaknesses and exploit those weaknesses. That's the fight within the fight. So for example, then, I'm 6'2", I'm 175 pounds. I'm long and I'm tall. So I tend to fight long. Not necessarily tall, but long. I use my height to my advantage when I'm fighting against someone who's shorter than I am. Because I'm 175 and I'm 6'2", I tend to fight people who are 5'10"-ish. They're much more compact than I am, even though we're the same weight class. So I tend to use my height and my length to my advantage, depending on the size of my opponent. But within that fight itself, there are moments then, a moment where I start to figure out my opponent's pattern. Well, he always throws a jab before he throws a rear round kick, or he always picks up his lead foot before he launches into a cross hook, whatever it might be. Before he tries for a clinch, he always throws a lead leg kick to the inside, whatever it might be. And then once I figure out the pattern, that's where the fight begins. The fight within the fight begins. Because now I'm going to set him up so that I can counter his kick or his punch and get the clinch and sweep him myself. And those moments will occur within a fight. Just like within jujitsu, when I'm training with a larger opponent, like um, my little brother Jack, we call him Manchild, because he's built like a superhero. He looks like a superhero. So physically and, and age-wise and technique-wise, 
if Jack wanted to, he could just kind of fold me up and put me in his pocket and walk away. So within our grappling matches, when we're sparring then, I always look for the fight within the fight with Jack because I have to wait for Jack to attack. And I know the path that he's going to take. I know his patterns because we train all the time. But I also know that I can't physically overwhelm him. So I can't rely on my strength. I can't rely on my size or my age because he's younger, he's quicker and so forth and so on. So I can't rely on, I have to rely on technique. Specifically, I have to rely on my defensive skills because he's going to overwhelm me. It's what he does. He's going to get on top of me. That's what he does. But then once he goes for that entry to go and get a top mount on me, that's when the fight within the fight begins because that's when he's going to attack my arm, for example. So how am I going to counter that? How am I going to attempt to get out from underneath him or sweep him? Or how am I going to use his aggression to my advantage to attack his leg, let's say, go for an ankle lock or a heel hook, whatever it might be. There's always a fight within a fight if you're relaxed and if you're focused and if you're in that moment and you're not outside of that moment and you're distracted by other things, even your own thoughts. There's always moments in every fight where there's a fight within the fight and you can change the entire direction of a fight by simply recognizing there's the fight. I'm going to let it come to me. I'm going to counterattack. I'm going to form a defense that opens up an attack from within my defense, and I'm going to counterattack. That's the fight within the fight. And an entire fight can be won or lost in those moments. I've seen people break mentally in those moments when I counterattacked, and they were overwhelmed by my counterattack. I've watched their eyes change. I've felt their bodies underneath me go slack and weaken. I felt their grip slip when they broke mentally because of a counterattack, because in that moment, they weren't prepared. And because they weren't mentally prepared, they physically deteriorated and, and wilted. So think about in terms of then life. Every day we wake up, Maybe we, we take a moment to consider what we're grateful for. Maybe we say our prayers. We get up, we get a cup of coffee, we pick up our book or the article we want to read. Maybe we do some exercises or do some stretches or yoga, whatever it is that you do to get going in the morning. There's an expectation and a hope that the day will go a certain way. It'll go a certain direction. You get dressed, you go to the bathroom, you get your teeth brushed, you get ready to go to work, whatever it might be. You sit at the table with your kids to have breakfast. You kiss your wife. You kiss your husband. You go out the door. There's a routine to that, right? There's a set of habits that you've developed that you count on. And yet within every day, there's going to be moments. And those moments are going to usually catch you unawares. And how you react in those moments, that's the fight within the fight. So for example, last night I'm on my way home from the gym. And this car is in the exit lane on the highway. It's getting off the highway. And then all of a sudden, it just drifts back across the white median that separates the exit lane, the off-ramp from the highway. It just merges in front of me. And I'm five feet behind this car at this point. It, it merges, and it doesn't care that I'm right there. And the young guy that's in the car apparently didn't need to slow down to merge into traffic behind me. He decided to just merge right in front of me. And it was my problem that he could hit, have hit me. Now, in that moment, I can either react angrily, because again, I just got back, I just got done teaching. I just got ro done rolling with Dutton, like another bear of a human being. It's like all of my training partners now are either outweigh me by 70 pounds or are just absolute monsters. I don't know what happened. 
So I'm I'm tired. I'm sweaty. My endorphins are are jacked up. Dopamine dump. I'm in the I'm in the perfect frame of mind and emotional state to react to someone cutting me off in traffic in a negative, aggressive way. So when that happens, I have a choice in that moment. I can react aggressively. I can I can pull around, come up alongside of him, and challenge him to to pull over and get in a fight with him or just scream at him. That's an option. I've chosen that option many times in the past. Or I can recognize that this person doesn't care about me personally and that his choice to merge in front of me had nothing to do with me and entirely everything to do with him. And more importantly, I saw him start to merge, so I took the necessary steps to not put myself and my vehicle in a position to get sideswiped or hit by this guy in his car. So I choose to take responsibility for myself, but also for him, so that we both get out of this safely. And then the next off-ramp, he took that off-ramp because apparently, judging by what happened, he took the wrong off-ramp. That's a moment. It's a fight within a fight. And the fight in that moment is with me, not with him. But that's my point, is that every fight within a fight isn't a fight against your opponent, whether it's an actual physical combative situation, or it's driving on the road and someone cuts you off, or someone at work does or says something that undercuts you or hurts you or causes you to want to react in a negative way and cuss that person out or give them a piece of your mind or blame them for what they did. Is it, at the end of the day, is it in that moment really about them or is it about you and the decision that you choose to make in that moment to take not only responsibility for your choice to react and how you react, but to take responsibility for the other person too and to say, I could escalate this situation. I could create a conflict that isn't there right now, or maybe it's just simmering. It's just below the surface. I could choose to de-escalate the conflict. I could choose to turn down the heat on this pot so that it doesn't come to a boil, or I can put this on blast and just see what happens in the midst of this chaos. I was just teaching a new student in jujitsu that last night. He's new. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know any techniques. It's his fifth class, fourth class. And I was explaining to him about side control and top pressure. And I explained to him, because you don't know anything, you try and create scrambles, you try and create chaos, and you hope that your opponent screws up and something falls into your lap as far as a submission. We all do it. I did it when I first started. Because you don't know what to do, you just act and you hope for the best. But hopefully, with experience, with practice, with showing up and, and repetition and learning and listening, you develop a sense of calm and relaxed purpose. And you recognize that creating these scrambles all the time for no reason other than you're hoping that your opponent makes a mistake is an, ex- an incredible waste of time and energy on your part. In that more often than not, you're going to end up getting submitted rather than your partner because you're creating opportunities for your partner to attack you because you're just kind of scrambling with your arms and your legs out in space and your head's up. It's a perfect recipe to get knocked out or choked out. But if you can slow down and breathe and relax and be more purposeful, how am I going to get around this person's legs and their guard? How am I going to get to the side or on top of this person to control them? How am I going to create an opportunity for a submission or a knockout? What do I need to do systematically step-by-step purposely to achieve my goal. And then, as I said to him then, if you slow down 
and just work on these basic steps that I just taught you for how to get out from side control, how to sweep, and how to get side control. Just work this every time you roll. Eventually, this is going to become the strongest part of your whole game because you took the time to develop this really good habit, to develop this really strong technique that will serve you not just now, but for the rest of however long you pursue this martial art. Because these are the basics, the fundamentals. And if you don't have these to build off of, you're going to develop all kinds of bad habits. And speaking from experience, then you got to go after those bad habits and you got to make them good habits. And it's a painful process. And it, it feels every time like you just went from the mountain peak down into the valley and you had to work your way back up again. But that's what learning is. At least for me, learning is always, oh, I made a bad choice. I developed a bad habit. I could have done this better. I said I chose to do that. So now I got to walk this back and I got to learn from that, hopefully, and then figure out what I did wrong, why I made that choice, and then how to make a different choice and go in a different direction so that next time this happens, I don't react the same way, make the same mistakes, and so on. So in the past, like I said, someone would cut me off. I'd pull up alongside of them. I'd give them the finger. I'd roll down my window and just scream at them, challenge them to fight, hoping to God that they didn't pull over and want to fight me because I didn't know how to fight. And then I'd get home and I'd rant and rave to my wife about this person that cut me off. And, you know, they were an a-hole and a jerk and all this stuff, and they don't care about anybody. And What was I doing? One, I was simply using this person as an opportunity to elevate myself above them and to say, I'm better than you are. And then, because I don't believe I'm better than they are, and I'm down on myself, and I'm depressed, and I'm anxious, and I'm unsatisfied with my life and my job, I'm unsatisfied with what's happened to me up to that point, I take it out on the first person that's in my way that gets that gives me the opportunity to virtue signal, to basically trumpet to the world, I'm better than this guy at least. I may not be worth much, but at least I'm better than this guy. And every day you just go out your door, and whether you're aware of it or not, you're searching for those moments, the fight within the fight, to prove you're better than you actually believe you are. And if there's an audience, awesome. This is why I just had this conversation an hour ago with some people we live in a shame-based culture. It's no surprise to anybody. We live in a shame-based culture. There's no room in this culture for forgiveness anymore. Someone did something 12 years ago. We can't forgive them. We can't allow for the fact that they've grown, they've matured, maybe they've learned from that statement they made or that thing that they did in the last 10 to 12 years. It's as if, it's not even as if, it's just this is the, what we see every day. Whatever you did in the past... It doesn't matter who you are in the present. That thing that you said or did in the past is who you are. That's your identity now forever. You are not a dynamic human being. You're not being. You're not doing. You're static. You're a statue. And you're trapped forever as this thing that you were when you made that statement or made that choice. There's no room for repentance. There's no room for forgiveness or mercy. You either are virtuous and good according to my standards, or you're not. You're, you're evil. You're either the type of guy who merges into someone and doesn't care about whether that person is in the way or not, or you're the type of person who always looks over his shoulder and puts his blinker on and slows down to enter traffic behind the person because that's the caring thing to do or whatever. There's only two sides. You're either the good guy or the bad guy nowadays, and it's all shame-based. And so people are afraid to talk and, and speak their mind and give their opinion because they're afraid of being attacked are canceled. People are afraid to not talk because then people will call them out for not talking. You know how this goes. It's no secret. It's, it's everywhere. 
But in a shame-based culture, then, there's no hope. There's no hope. Because all you're looking for when you're looking for those moments or when those moments come up where you have to make a choice, what you're choosing to do and not to do is to be publicly shamed or to not shame yourself. Because you have no hope of being forgiven if you make the wrong choice. So therefore, everyone's afraid of making the wrong choice, and therefore everyone's afraid of doing anything, lest you offend someone. Versus in a guilt-based culture, or at least a positively directed shame-based culture, there's always the expectation of forgiveness. I screwed up. I said the wrong thing. I shouldn't have done that. I didn't know any better at the time. I was 22 years old. I was stupid. I'm 42 years old. I know better. I'm not that guy anymore. Whatever it might be. When shame is entirely negative and destructive, and there's no room for forgiveness, and there's no forgiveness ever offered, it is simply, we're going to cancel you, and we're going to seek to erase you from existence. There's no hope. It's a hopeless society that you live in at that point. And when people have no hope, they just give up and quit. And then when those moments happen, that fight within the fight that happens in our lives, in our relationships, in our jobs, at school, at the gym, what do you do? How do you react? You give up. You quit. Going back to my friend Jack, I know that I have two options when I roll a Jack, normally. The third option is I submit him by some you know miracle of God. But I have two options, defend and hold guard, for five minutes and quote unquote, win the fight within the fight, which is to just hold guard and not get submitted. That's my, that's my one option. The other option is I just quit and, and I just let him get on top of me and submit me because, oh, it's inevitable. But in those moments then where he gets a dominant position, do I choose to quit or do I choose to fight? Do I choose to use the technique, use my skills, use my willpower, use my determination and my endurance to withstand the attack, formulate a defense, try and sweep, try and escape, try to counterattack, or do I say, well, there's no point to this anyways, so I might as well just tap. A year ago, that is the decision I made. Oh, he's going to defeat me anyway, so as soon as he grabs this, I'm just going to tap. Now, there are moments when you should do that, when you're like, yeah, it, it's, I'm trapped, it's inevitable, the submission is there, there's nothing I can do. Yeah, tap. There's no money on the table, tap. Tap early, tap often. But if you don't have to, because you, there's still something that you can do, you still have a choice. You still have an opportunity to create a fight within the fight or to recognize the fight within the fight and then react to that. Don't quit. But recognize, if I can hold out for the next 30 seconds, that now is in my mind that I last 30 seconds longer than the last time. Or I held guard for four and a half minutes this time. Last time it was two and a half minutes. So what did I do that I was able to maintain guard and not get submitted for two minutes longer? Or how come before COVID, I was afraid of sparring because I was afraid of getting hit or I was afraid of contact or I was afraid of being you know, beaten up versus now after COVID, I'm not. Like what happened in the interim for you to change your attitude? What is it? And how do you replicate that? How do you nurture that and cultivate that? In your relationship with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your partner, what are you doing to communicate effectively and express yourself in a way that they understand where you're coming from and what you're trying to say to them? And what are you doing to improve the way that you listen to the other person and not just dismiss them because you've heard this all before? What are you doing when you're on the road or at work or at school 
to recognize those moments and go, oh, this is the fight within the fight that Donovan was talking about. And this is the most important moment of this entire interaction or this entire engagement. There was one fight that I had against a, he was a, he was a purple belt. He was a higher ranked opponent than I was. And I shouldn't have beat him on paper. And I did, I choked him out. But that was the first time I, I was really consciously aware in a, a tournament situation of the fight within the fight. And when I, when I recognized it, it was almost primal. It wasn't necessarily a conscious thing where I said, oh, here's the fight within the fight. It was primal. I felt it. And when I felt that, my brain said, don't stop. Hold on to this. You're stronger than he is. You can hold this longer. And I did, and he tapped. Now, the initial reaction was, you don't have the right position. This is, he's going to get out. You've got to switch back to top mount. You've got to fix your position and then reattack. But because I had worked on this and nurtured this and, and grounded out in the gym, sparring day after day after day, when that moment presented itself, the initial reaction was, be reasonable. Take the safe route. Do this. Versus that primal reaction, which is, this is what you trained for. This is the moment that you've prepared for. Now take it. And I did, and he tapped, and I won. But that's my point, is that there's going to be those moments where the fight within the fight is lost because you made the wrong choice or you quit. But don't beat yourself up. Instead, recognize that's, a, that's an opportunity to learn. And it's an opportunity the next time to not make that same choice or that same mistake again. And that you can build off of those moments. You can nurture a healthy attitude towards those moments so that then when that person is talking to you or arguing with you, when you're negotiating, when you're confronted with that person who's in your face and threatening you or you're, you know, you're in a fight, you recognize there's a moment. And if I just am, I stay relaxed and I breathe and I stay in the present tense and I'm, I'm focused and I'm listening and I'm aware and I'm conscious of what this other person is doing, they're going to start to tell me what I need to hear. They're going to start showing me with their body language and their facial expressions and their attitude and their demeanor what I need to learn to engage, to overcome, to defeat them. It's the fight within the fight. And if we can recognize those moments, I think in our relationships will be better. I think in our careers and our vocations will be better. And in the fight will be better. Because then we won't become overwhelmed by the moment and miss those moments. Because like I said, those moments are where a lot of fights, most fights in my opinion, and I've talked with others way more experienced than I am, that's when the fight is won or lost. So I'll wrap it up now at the end of this chapter on Muay Thai by Billy Moore, where he talks about having his first real Muay Thai fight. He says... One day I plucked up courage and asked Papa to let me fight in one of the real shows. I told him I would split the money I earned with him if he allowed me to fight. No doubt influenced by the offer of money, he agreed to let me compete in one of the Monday night fights. He set up a match between me and a guy named Kempfla from a gym in Lampung, a small city outside Chiang Mai. The fight was due to take place in two weeks, during which time I was to carry on fighting in the show bouts. And this is what I wanted, uh, to battle with a seasoned boxer of equal size and weight, but not necessarily with the same skills that I possessed. It would be a real hard-fought contest, an opportunity for me to prove myself as a proper Muay Thai fighter. On the day of the fight, I was alone in my room. As I lay on my bed and stared up at the huge propeller fan spinning above my head, 
I mentally prepared myself for what lay ahead that evening. Okay, what do I need to avoid? The holds, the knees, the elbows. I just needed to avoid him altogether. I was feeling nervous the whole day and fought the fight a million times in my head, playing and replaying every move I had been taught. I arrived at the arena early. My fight was the last on the card. Nim Dom and Yut helped me to get ready and rubbed boxing liniment all over my body. I only wished it was Kevlar, because it was surely only body armor that could protect me from a possible beating. They were talking to me all the while, but I wasn't listening. I was watching the only other foreigner besides me who was fighting that night. He was a man called Johnson from the Isle of Man, and entered the ring at number seven on the bill. I watched as this man got systematically destroyed within two rounds. He had been caught with a powerful forward elbow above his right eye, which knocked him out cold, his blood splattering the canvas. Nim Dom and Yut both looked at me. I could see concern etched on both of their young faces. Billy, you number one, Yut whispered in my left ear. Jai Yan Yan, have a cool heart, said Nim Dom, while squeezing my neck. Mama came over to me with one of the flyers advertising the fights that night. Kortort kun Billy. Sorry, Mr. Billy, she said, handing me the flyer. I could see my name next to a picture of a Chinese man, and my country of origin was given as Sweden. I laughed out loud. Now I was Chinese Billy from Sweden. Number 11 on the bill. Cheap Charlie. My name was called, and I entered the ring to the hypnotic beat of the traditional Muay Thai music. I eyed my opponent, Kempfla from across the ring and watched as he performed the Ram Mui, a ritual dance. He stretched and swayed as he paid his respects to spirits unseen. I was totally focused and ready for combat against this Thai master. The smoke-filled arena was filled to capacity. The bell sounded. It was time. Kempfla came out strongly. He struck the back of my leg with a powerful roundhouse kick. He repeated the same kick only to have it blocked by my shin. Agony. My right leg went numb from the bone-on-bone -bone impact. We circled each other, both searching for weaknesses. We were like two lions trapped in a cage. When he attacked, the crowd were up on their feet and screaming. He teeped me, which is a front kick, forcing me into a corner. His knees and elbows rained down on me ferociously, forcing me to defend myself. All I could do was cover up for protection. The bell sounded, ending the first round. Papa was waiting for me in the corner, shadowboxing. Okay, good, Papa shouted above the roar of the excited crowd who were baying for my blood. Nim Dom removed my gum shield and squirted water in my mouth and over my head and body to cool me down, while Ute rubbed frantically at my now red and bruising legs. The bell sounded for the second round. Now fight! Box! Farong! Box! roared Papa. I charged out and switched from Muay Thai to boxing. I jabbed fast, connecting with my opponent's face. I stepped back when he attacked with a solid kick. Quickly, I moved back in and, seeing an opening, smashed a right cross square on his chin, knocking him off his feet. He hit the canvas hard. The crowd were standing again and screaming. Their allegiance was changing as they sensed my victory over their fallen hero. Kimfloss stayed down. He was hurt, but conscious. I got down on my knees, held my hands together and waited, or wide, sorry. I put my hands together and wide. I bowed to show my respect for a great fighter. Gang Mok, very good. 
he said, obviously impressed with my boxing skills. It was over. I had won. Papa and the other fighters from my camp were pleased and were all cheering and celebrating my first victory as a Muay Thai combatant. Both Nim, Dom, and Yut hugged me tightly. Billy, good, very good, said Mama, as she kissed me on the forehead. I felt myself become a part of the camp at last. At that moment, I knew this is where I belonged, in an old, battered, run-down gym with a blood-splattered canvas covering an uneven boxing ring. This was now my home. A Prayer Before Dawn by Billy Moore My Nightmare in Thailand's Prisons Look for the fight within the fight. Be ready for the moment. Train for the moment. Prepare always for those moments. So that when the moment presents itself, no matter how beaten up or overwhelmed you are, you are ready to react positively, constructively, to meet the challenge, to engage the challenge, to not run away from it or hide from the moment, but also to make a good decision, to wage the good fight. Whether it be the good fight of faith, the good fight of the relationship, the good fight at work, the good fight at the gym, prepare. Prepare yourself for the good fight. Prepare for those moments so that you see the fight within the fight. And then hopefully you win. That's all I got for today, folks. Thank you. I love you. Thanks for supporting the show. We'll see you again Sunday, maybe Saturday for a brand new podcast. Love you. Peace.